And I just remember spending so much of my time alone begging for signs, begging for spiritual gifts, begging for a feeling of purpose and of meaning and of whoever, whatever God was showing me the way, like showing me something, showing me a way to live life, showing me a way where I could definitively wake up every day and say, everything that I'm doing right now is God's will. So that's non-negotiable, like that's that's non-debatable. And I know it in my heart and I'll always know it in my heart. I was looking for certainty. I was looking for the absence of doubt. As I grew older, I realized that that doubt never goes away. I equated that with if my doubt never goes away, Mm. I'm never quite the Christian I need to be. So I'm here with Matt Langston, the one and only. (laughs) As far as I know. As far as you know. Yeah. uh, We're here in the Candy Rock studio. Thank you so much for (laughs) letting me invade your space. uh, You're welcome to invade this space anytime that you want to. So for (laughs) those who are not aware of Matt Langston, tell us some about yourself. I am a producer and podcaster. I, I run a record label called Rock Candy Recordings. I play in a band called 11D7. Um, I also play in another band called The Jelly Rocks. And I do music beds. I do, I write songs for commercials and companies and produce bands. And my life pretty much revolves around music and talking about music and the human experience through music, That's through fantastic. bands. Yeah. So. And you've kind of been holding my hand through this whole podcasting process. So <laughs> if, for people who enjoy the show, they really have you to thank. Not that and, you really need any handholding. Oh, I, mean, I, I, I need handholding I th- at the you, very beginning. You I, asked me, like, well, how, how do I podcast? And I was like, well, so you, and then by the time I got those words out of my mouth, you were like, I think I figured it out. <laughs> 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 well, it was, it, you were very helpful and you continue to be very helpful. Also, Matt Langston has provided all the music for the show. So if you enjoy the music, you have him to thank. The music is from the Jelly Rocks. Oh, that's right. His solo project. Whenever yes. I'm listening to your show, I, I, I get reminded of that. But I yes. seem to forget, like as soon as the show's over, I'm like, oh, I wasn't on there. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So today we are talking about faith and doubt. I've written quite a bit about this subject and where I am with faith and where I am just in my journey as a Christian. And it's a very uncomfortable journey. I've written a lot about it on my blog, but I've realized that I actually haven't talked about it much on the podcast. I wanted to do a a series of shows just about that and, and just having kind of a really honest and open conversation about Where I am with faith and the process of doubt, I would say that I am a very doubt-filled believer. I don't just mean doubt as the occasional question. I mean doubt as a chronic, crippling experience. Yeah. And that's really been my experience for the past decade as a Christian. And I don't know if you relate to that or not, Matt, but I definitely get the sense that we come from <laughs> that we come from similar places. In yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. 
Absolutely. I, I feel like if there is, I feel like having grown up, and we've talked about this before when we did the whole like Nashville statement episodes uh, for Sacred Tension, but I feel like if I, I feel like my religion that I practice more now kind of involves way more doubt than it does certainty. And I feel like those are just, that's informed by experiences that I've had in life or my own questions about the existentiality of <laughs> of things. And in particular, like watching things, watching things change within our country. And I feel like maybe you and I have both had had the opportunity to see what Christianity in, in, in essence has looked like in other countries and how people practice it differently. And I think that that that's kind of informed how close-minded I feel like the the Christianity that I grew up with was. Yeah, I, I feel like I'm constantly moving moving between stories and feelings of doubt and uncertainty, and trying to figure out what are the what are the most tangible things to kind of hold on to. In particular, with Christianity at this point. Yeah, yeah. So you are in the place where I think a lot of us are in, which is where we're kind of negotiating what stays and what goes. Sure. And I think a lot of us are in this place of compromising and negotiating what we want our faith to look like. Mm. And I've been in that place for a long time, but I feel like, especially over the past year, I've gone through this grieving process where I've you know, been through all the stages of grief for my faith. I feel Mm. like I've been very deeply grieving for that solid, clear, tangible faith that I had through much of my life. And then that that faith started to break down in my early 20s. And now at the age of 29, I, I feel like I've finally gone through denial, through bargaining, through anger, <laughs> and now I'm at <clears throat> acceptance. Yeah. And kind of getting used to this new landscape that I'm in. What tradition were you raised in? Uh, I, I grew up very staunch Southern Baptist, and I was okay. I was a super youth group kid. Like, okay. want, ha, wanted to play by the rules, wanted to do all of it. And I, and I feel like as I watched Christianity or whatever interpretation of Christianity it was that I was witnessing around me fail, fail people, fail systems, and fail communities. I didn't have a choice. I had to doubt. Yes. <laughs> I had to doubt what it was all built on, especially when I saw a lot of people using faith as an excuse for cover-ups or as an excuse to treat people poorly yeah. or to ostracize people or watching it within the social constructs of like church. And I feel like there, there, there's a difference there. I feel like Christianity as a whole is not necessarily a specific Oh, absolutely. It's not representative of a specific church that you may have had an experience in. And I totally understand that. But I feel like that was, I wish someone at a younger age had widened my view of it, had said, hey, you know, it's not, because I grew up with everybody saying like, Catholics are bad. Catholics are probably going to hell. <laughs> uh oh. Like, oh my gosh, if you're a Buddhist, like that, you might as well be worshiping Satan. And uh, it was just, it was closed minded. And, and none of those arguments and none of those beliefs and ideas hold water. And the older that you get, the more that you've been surrounded by those beliefs, the more you just don't really have a choice but to distrust um, <laughs> all those sorts of constructs that, that people had created for you growing up. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then you start to not only distrust the construct, but also the mouthpieces by which it was delivered. So, yeah, I mean, I think in in that way, it's it's really healthy to have a crisis of faith. It's really healthy to have doubt. It is. 
And so, you know, this is kind of what this podcast is all about. Mm -hmm. The title of the podcast is Sacred Tension. And it's the... Oh, wow. Yeah. In case you you didn't know that. (laughs) Great name. Um, Yeah. For those of you just stumbling onto this podcast and don't know where you are, welcome to Sacred Tension. Yeah. And the idea is that maybe doubt is actually the ultimate act of worship. Mm. Because whatever ultimate reality there is, is the admitting, it is the acknowledgement that I am not that. Whatever God is, I am not it. I do not have the answers. And so in a lot of ways, doubt and questioning is the ultimate act of worship. Did you ever have this happen to you at at a younger time where it was almost like the degree of faith that you had was constantly being called into question by how much doubt you had. And and I, I mean that by saying, like, it was the good Christians, it was the advanced Christians who had somehow eradicated doubt from oh, their lives. Yes. And it was just so clear and so perfect for them. I felt like they used this term like over and over again, like, do you know that you know that you know that you're going to heaven and that you're saved? Yes. And there shouldn't be a shadow of doubt in your mind that you're going to end up with Christ whenever you die. And it's like, I will never shake that. I don't, I don't know if any, I, I think if, if anybody's saying like, I know, I just know that like where I'm going to end up. My, my first thought is, I think you're full of shit. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if I have any other way of putting it. Like, I, I know that there's some things in life that people can be certain about. And I, there's some things that I'm certain about. That I don't necessarily have a, an explanation for why I'm certain about them. And, and I, I believe that maybe people feel that same way about their religion or, or their belief. But I feel like doubt is such an integral part of the experience here. I'm afraid of landing somewhere because yes. I've watched the sands shift underneath me too often. Yes. Yeah. So I was raised Presbyterian. In a family of two ministers, both my parents are ministers. I am the only, well, I I have two older sisters, both of whom are also in ministry. And then I am the fabulously gay black sheep. And so (laughs) you can imagine how just from the get go, I was set up for a very hard life in faith. Yeah. And, you know, people ask me all the time, why are you still a Christian? And the honest answer that I can give them, and this is this is the question I get the most uh, on the podcast and on the blog, why are you still a Christian after everything you've been through in the church? And the most honest answer I can give is, I have no fucking clue. I have no <laughs> idea. And, <laughs> you know, there are times when I've desperately wanted to not be a Christian. There are times when I've desperately wanted to walk away. But for whatever reason, I haven't. And I'm not going to say that it is the reasonable thing. I'm not going to say that it is the rational thing. It's just right. who I am and where I am. So I wanted to, as, as kind of the catalyst for this conversation, as kind of the jumping off point for this conversation, I wanted to go through the axioms of faith by Science Mike. Yeah. And I find these axioms as kind of the last straw that keep me within Christianity. Mm. And, you know, I have found these axioms very, very helpful. For those who don't know Science Mike, he's a podcaster and author, and he he kind of facilitates people's deconstruction of faith, and he helps people kind of go through the journey of doubt and then come to a sustainable version of Christianity that incorporates science and humanistic values and mystical traditions that people still value. Mm. And so let's go ahead and jump into those axioms of faith. Sure. I've never heard of the axioms of faith that Mike had come up with. I feel like I had seen his name kind of bounced around. He's written 
a book that I feel like has bounced around circles of friends of mine. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. As I was doing some research for this episode, I was like, oh, that actually seems like a pretty interesting book. But yeah. So so how do you want to do Should we just go through them one by one? Let's just go. Yeah. Let's just go through this one by one and just see what I feel like you call me on the show to like, <laughs> one day you're going to call me on the show to read like a manifesto. <laughs> hey, let's read Mein Kampf, Matt. Let's <laughs> <laughs> yep. So these axioms of faith build on one another. The idea is that the axioms are... Well, define the, d- define axiom okay, first. Okay, so, so an axiom is self-evidently true. That is, that is something that is accepted as true without controversy. Exactly. Right. And so what... He, what Science Mike is trying to do is establish a series of axioms that people can follow, and it's the bare minimum that mm-hmm. people have to affirm in order to remain part of the Christian community. And so this is setting the bar very, very low. You know, this is the bare minimum. And, and what he's trying to do is create a system that can be proven scientifically and still allows people to be part of their deeply valued Christian communities. Right. You know, I I think along the way, we have to ask, why is it important for people to stay in their Christian communities? Mm. Why is it important that I stay a Christian? Yeah. And, and hopefully we can get into that along the way. You know, why not just all of us go and become atheists? I, I think that's kind of one of the underlying questions that we can get get into in the process of this. So the first axiom is faith is at least a way to contextualize the human need for spirituality and find meaning in the face of mortality. Even if this is all faith is, spiritual practice can be beneficial to cognition, emotional states, and culture. Yeah, I feel like it's hard to not be on board with that. It's very hard to not be on board with that. Yeah. So basically what we're doing here is we're recasting faith outside of this harsh paradigm, this false paradigm. Or outside of a, a, a singular religion. Exactly. Yeah. Outside of a singular singular religion, but also outside of the false binary of atheism and theism, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's ultimately a false binary when it comes to religion. We can be deeply religious people and exist somewhere in this fluid middle or kind of outside of this false binary between atheism and religion. Does that make sense? Yeah. So let's let's move on. God is at least the natural forces that created and sustained the universe as experienced via a cycle, psychosocial model in human brains that naturally emerges from innate biases. Even if that is a comprehensive definition for God, the pursuit of this personal subjective experience can provide meaning, peace, and empathy for others. Yeah. So my thoughts on this, so there's another podcaster named Carrie Poppy. Mm-hmm. And she does a show called Ono, Ross, and Carrie. And Ono, Ross, and Carrie is is this fabulous show where Ross and Carrie go out and join Scientology and yeah. become Mormons and become Raelians. And, you know, they kind of join all these fringe religious movements. And they've been doing this for years. Uh, well, Carrie Poppy recently did a TED Talk where she said there are two kinds of truth. Mm-hmm. There is inner truth and there is outer truth. Inner truth is when someone says, I don't care if Christ was literally raised from the dead. Mm. That story is so meaningful to me. Mm. That story is so significant. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But either way, that story, that myth is so profound and such a guiding force in my life. Mm. 
I don't want to give it up. And Carrie Poppy says that is you have shifted that narrative from scientific truth to art, and that is inner truth. Mm. The they are these inner guiding myths. That's interesting. External truth are the external <clears throat> truths about the material world, right? Okay, so that sun in the sky is either there or it isn't. Your two adorable dogs are either there or they are not. <laughs> and they're always there. <laughs> Whether And they are always yeah. there. Whether Christ literally rose from the dead or not, that is, in fact, an external truth claim. It either happened or it didn't. Right. Now, in order for external truth claims to be proven, they have to be falsifiable. Falsifiable means you have to prove that they could be wrong. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so there are these two modalities of truth and she said, we very often confuse these. Yeah. We very, and we are very often not fair to others mm. who are pursuing an inner truth. Right. And we demand that they hold it up to external truth claims and vice versa. Right. So this was incredibly helpful for me. Mm. And listening to that TED Talk, listening to this whole, and, and listening to her show as well, helped me piece together that when it comes to external truth claims, I cannot go beyond the magisterium of science. Mm. When it comes to external truth claims, I am functionally an agnostic. And that makes people really uncomfortable, especially in the Christian community. Yeah, I mean, as you say that out loud, I feel like there's a... There's an element of that that still feels like a moving target as our understanding of science is constantly evolving. Absolutely. But I feel like our understanding of science is constantly evolving. But the interesting parallel to that is that the longer that you experience life, your inner truth is constantly evolving. Exactly. Both are evolving. Yeah. Inner truth, my inner truth is Christianity. And I see Christianity as an inner guiding myth. And so do I believe in a literal external God mm. who is personal, I don't think so. I don't know. I can't say for sure. Do I still experience that God? Yeah. Yes, I do. Mm. Do I still pray? Yes, I do. And so I'm caught in this strange in-between place where I embrace the inner guiding myth of Christianity I accept that I cannot go beyond the magisterium of science when it comes to external truth claims. Mm -hmm. And I allow myself to still experience God and still say he probably doesn't exist simultaneously. I think you and I have talked about this briefly on the show before, but one of the things that I find interesting about Christianity is that, it, at least it, within the sects of it that I grew up in, they were so averse to anything that seemed magical, but many of their beliefs were, as you would put it, magical thinking. Um, yes. And I feel like I spent so much of my teenage years trying to marry this idea of what everybody was telling me that God was with what I was experiencing, whatever, like God as whatever he might be, because mm. I don't know. <laughs> mm. And I feel like people were constantly saying, well, it's, you know, it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. And I understand that. I feel like people were constantly telling me, you know, if you draw near to Christ, he'll draw near to you. And if you read your Bible and you pray every day, you know, that it's basically like 
milk for your spirituality. It will strengthen mm-hmm. the bones of, of your inner spirituality. And the more that you know the Bible and the more that you can defend what you believe and the more that you don't look like an idiot in arguments for why you believe what you believe, those are all indicators of how strong of a Christian you are. And I just remember spending so much of my time alone begging for signs, begging for spiritual gifts, begging for a feeling of purpose and of meaning and of whoever, whatever God was showing me the way, like showing me something, showing me a way to live life, show me a way where I could definitively wake up every day and say, everything that I'm doing right now is God's will. So that's non-negotiable, like that's, that's non-debatable. And I know it in my heart and I'll always know it in my heart. I was looking for certainty. I was looking for the absence of doubt. As I grew older, I realized that that doubt never goes away. I equated that with if my doubt never goes away, mm. I'm never quite the Christian I need to be. Right. Or there's something that I'm doing in my life that's somehow there's hindering. A piece of yeah. you. There's a piece of you that's, or a piece of your faith that's missing. Well, it's an imaginary balancing act. It's yes. like going to someone and, pro- and saying, Here, here's who God is, and this is what it takes to get close to him. Christian music, Christian movies, Christian content, praying, reading your Bible, memorizing things, like studying to show yourself approved, all these different things. And none of it ever, ever was fulfilling for me. Mm. It's chasing a carrot. Mm-hmm. It was chasing a carrot for me. There are so many beautiful things about Christianity that I've experienced throughout my life, but most of what I was brought up on, which is this chasing yeah. of this imaginary feeling or security, I never attained. I don't have to this day. Yeah. And I can't sit in front of everyone and say, this is how to do it. Yeah, when it, it, When that whole process that I poured myself into failed me and it failed others. And and it affected my relationship with others and affected my relationship and how I viewed, how they viewed God. Because I was like, if if people view God in a different way than what I've been viewing God, since clearly mine is the right way, you know, then something must be wrong with them. Mm. But I'm the one on the right track. Right. And throughout the course of my life, you realize that none of that holds water. (laughs) None of it keeps you from struggling, from failing, from having addictions from having relationships fail, from having all of these things that were labeled as Christian and right and righteous and predestined, to have all of them just collapse. Yes. Then, then clearly something is wrong. Yes. Either the God that you know has no regard for what's happening in your life or your construct of what you think God is has to shift. Hmm. It has to change in some way. Do you still call yourself a Christian? That's a really, I, I, I doubt. Yeah. <laughs> Sure. I'm like, or I don't do you, think there's do you... an easy answer for that either. I, I think that there, I think that it's in particular, like we live in America and Christian gets equated with a lot of things. So within the context of the place that I live on the planet, I'm finding it harder and harder to call myself a Christian. I, I understand. I, I think that there is a, that my inner truth is that there is something incredibly true about the story of Christ yes. and about the Bible. And I feel like there have been things that regardless of all the exterior motivations or, or lessons or people trying to tell me what God was, I feel like there are moments where I've experienced truth. Yes. Where I've had these centering moments in life. Yes. That have meant everything. Mm-hmm. And that have guided me and directed me in some way. And I feel like there is something about the story of Christ that resonates really profoundly 
and strongly in how I view the world and how I view relationships and how I want to treat other people. Yeah. So I can't, I don't think I could entirely walk away from Christianity because I feel tethered to it in some way, but I don't feel like I can get on board with all of with it. With all of it. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting you say that. Something that I've been thinking about quite a bit because I think I would fall into the category of what's called post-Christian. And post-Christian meaning post-Christian isn't exactly not Christian. It, you know, it's like post-hardcore music <laughs> is still right. <laughs> is still heavy sounding music. Yeah. It, it's but it, it's progressed. Yeah. And and so that's kind of where I am is I'm in a place beyond Orthodox Christianity. I'm in a place beyond what anyone, I think, would consider to be, you know, traditional Orthodox Christianity, but I'm still part of the Christian tradition. And I'm in a place that you can only get to by way of Christianity. Mm. Okay. And so I'm, because of that alone, I still consider myself Christian or at least within that strain, you know, within within that that tradition. Mm. And, you know, one of the things that I've learned is I don't have to reinvent yeah. the wheel. You know, I, I feel like there's often this false binary in, in our culture between you either totally embrace your religion or you totally reject it. I think that's wrong because I have been given, and you know, if if that's true for other people, you know, I, I understand that and I cast no judgment on that. People do what they need to do. But for me personally, I just find that a false binary where, yeah, my faith has pretty much been destroyed, you know, mm. and, and I've had to navigate it and negotiate it with as much integrity as I as I can. But as I have thought about the possibility of leaving the faith altogether, I've realized I'm in this vast ruined city called mm. my faith, called mm. Christianity. Why should I leave that vast ruined city when there are already so many resources right here and I can take the remains and build something new. I don't have to, to leave and start something new completely. Yeah. You know, I can take the remains of my faith and I can take the dregs and the remains of Christianity that I have and build something new with it. And it would, I feel like it would be a waste for me to walk away from that. It's so interesting that you use that analogy because there, I feel like, I feel like that. So I, I, when I heard you say that, I'm reminded of the Christian tenet of humility mm. of what if it is, what if I'm meant to constantly have my city of belief, my inner city, just always be in ruins mm. and live within that humility. And maybe the only way I find any sort of stability is simply in helping other people wade through their ruins. Absolutely. Or help them to build their cities. Absolutely. Or I don't want to put my faith in the city. Yes. I, I feel like for me right now, Christianity has ended at a place of who knows what's next. Yes. I have no idea what the next chapter is. And, and the only surefire way that I know of moving forward is only in humility, mm. is only in trying to help others come through, you know, whatever darkness that I've come out of. And I feel like I find peace in that. But if I had never gone through anything, I would feel like, I, what do I really have to offer? A, uh, a theologian, I can't remember her name right now. She's a mystic. Um, Hillary Clinton. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> the beatific Hillary Clinton. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Cynthia Bourgeau. 
Mm. Uh, Cynthia Bourgeau says that we are both hospice workers and midwives mm. for Christianity. And I really, really relate to that. Sure. You know, in a lot of ways, we are tending to the death right. of, of Christianity in our culture. We are tending to the death of this huge, vast tradition in America and in the Western world. And, and it is our responsibility to not resist that, but to do so with dignity and care and respect uh, the same way mm. we would for a grandmother, you know, and at the very same time, we're functioning as midwives where we are bringing into the world, we are helping something give birth to a new faith, to a new tradition. Mm. And I find that incredibly helpful. I think non-theistic religion, my personal bias, my personal opinion is that non-theistic religion, religion that embraces science and inner mystical experience simultaneously is the way of the future. Mm. In this second axiom, Science Mike says several things. God is the is at least the natural forces that create right. and sustain the universe. <clears throat> and so this is kind of an Einsteinian view of God, but that, that isn't very personal. Uh, there's also kind of the God network within the brain, and we can create through prayer and meditation yeah. this subjective personal experience of a God. And even if that God is not actually there, the experience of that God, as he says, can provide meaning, peace, and empathy for others and is ultimately a good, healthy thing. I, I feel like this is this is interesting because whenever I read that description of God as being at least the natural forces that created and sustain the universe as experienced by the psychosocial model in human brains, I was just reminded of all of the, like, as we're going to whittle it down to to just that, there's also, I think it also reminded me of the, the Higgs boson Yes. particle, yes. Um, sometimes referred to as the God particle. And essentially for everybody who is not a science nerd, and I'm not either, I just I'm kind not, of get I'm interested either. in this I'm... kind of stuff. It's basically this particle where they can't figure, can't quite figure out where it gets its mass from. So it kind of like transcends beyond this uh, theory of relativity sort of thinking ab about the world and and kind of gets gets down to the nitty gritty on the atomic level of like, well, as is my understanding, there's probably some scientists out there that's like, shut the fuck up. Yes, and, you and don't for, know what you're talking about. And I do have some some people who are way smarter than, yeah. than I am who yeah. listen. And so for those of you who know your shit, please. <laughs> please call me out. But it's basically please like. Please tweet us. We're still kind of unsure where a lot of energy comes from. Yes, that, that holds a lot of these atomic particles together. That kind of holds us together. Um, and and even the scientist that it's named after, Peter Higgs, he hated people calling it the God particle because he's like, "This is science. We're going to figure some new shit out, like in another couple years." So just hang on. But yeah, I just think that's so interesting because to me that like scientific advancement still kind of seems to parallel our understanding, or or maybe like our just current understanding of spirituality. Like we kind of explain our spirituality through scientific principles like absolutely these. yeah so moving on from the from the uh the statement about god in in that god is at least the next axiom of faith <clears throat> is that prayer is at least a form of meditation that encourages the development of healthy brain tissue lowers stress and can connect us to god even if that is a comprehensive definition of prayer the health and psychological benefits of prayer justify the discipline. I feel like that's a pretty healthy marriage. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, of the two. So from what I understand, Science Mike is working off of the research 
of a particular scientist. Let me let me just pull up his name here quickly because I think this is important. Yeah, so Science Mike is is working off of the research of a scientist named Andrew Newberg. Mm. And he is the author of books like How God Changes Your Brain. And basically, Andrew Newberg is the pioneer. Let me make sure I get that last name right. Yes, Andrew Newberg. And he's basically the pioneer of a field called neurotheology. Mm. And neurotheology is the study of God the study of prayer and mystical experience yeah. in the brain and how these practices affect the brain. And basically what he shows is that these experiences are real. Yeah. People actually experience these things in the brain. And by and large, a lot of them are positive. Now, it depends on what God you believe in. Well, because there's scientific proof in oh, these yeah. studies. Like, you know, as as people are claiming to have these experiences, it's like, well, there's there's neurological there's uh, neurological things happening in the brain that are that are quantifiable. Exactly. And now whether these experiences are positive positive or not depends on who your God is. So if your God is an angry God, mm. then that God is going to have a negative effect on your brain. It is going to make the world a more fearful place. It's going to make other people seem more alien. Yeah. And so you see this in a lot of fundamentalists where mm. other nationalities, yeah. other races, other religions, even other Christian communities are demonized. Yeah. Okay. And this is in part because the God that they follow is an angry, scary, jealous God. Mm. And that creates a very different view of the world. If, however, you pray to a loving God, to the God of Julian of Norwich, the mother God, yeah. who draws all things to herself, yeah. the, the loving father who embraces the whole world, that has a, a, a an incredibly positive effect on how you see the world. Sure. You know, and... But, but, some, but I feel like those people are, 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 at least my experience with them is that they are frightened of positivity because they would view that as like the watering down of their faith or of their you, religion or of their understanding of God. To do say you mean that, the, the, the fundamentalists? Yeah, or, oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So I do still pray. Here's the really interesting thing. I have struggled with church and Christian community and prayer my entire life. Yeah. And now what's so weird, what's just so paradoxical right. is that now that I have accepted that I'm basically an agnostic, okay, functionally, you yeah. know, in terms of external truth claims, sure. I'm agnostic, I can now pray. It's the most bizarre thing. Mm. And so, you know, I read the Book of Common Prayer. I love the Episcopalian Book of Common Prayer. What, what do you feel like was the thing that brought you there? What was the critical point where it snapped and all of a sudden you felt like, oh, I can handle this understanding of what prayer is, or all of a sudden, like, prayer makes sense to me if I take this specific thing out of the equation? Well, you know, actually what it was, was our mutual friend, Timothy Wilds, who <laughs> is going to be on the show. Yep. He's an extraordinary man, and I can't wait to have him on the show. But several months ago, or, or I think it was, act no, it was early last year, we went out to coffee, and Timothy Wilds is just a master in music and worship mm. and contemplative worship. He has this deep love and incredibly profound understanding of worship. And one day, we were just having coffee, and I was just listening to him talk. Yeah. Listening to him talk about liturgy and listening to him talk about 
worship. And there was just something deeply contagious mm. about that. And listening to him talk, I think I got it. I got the beauty of it. And and I caught it. You know, I caught the bug. I caught the liturgy bug. Suddenly, weirdly, against all odds, I found that I could go to church again. Mm. And I don't know why. I think a lot of it has to do with honesty. I think when we are dishonest with ourselves, that creates an enormous block. I, I feel like I've spent a great portion of my life being dishonest with just how deep this doubt goes huh? and being dishonest about how deeply it hurts me. So would you consider that to be part of your inner truth? Oh, yeah. Maybe it's something that like was itching to be acknowledged. Yes. And then once it was acknowledged, then, suddenly you were free to kind of move on to whatever the next yeah, phase was. Absolutely. Okay. Exactly. You know, I mentioned the stages of grief and we kind of laughed about it, but I really did go through the stages no, it's of true. grief. There was a long season of denial. Yeah. Where I was just like, this is just too fucking scary. I cannot look at it. You know, my friend Danielle, regular co-host for the show, yeah. she described her process away from conservative traditional Catholicism to a more open, embracing, accepting Episcopalianism as like the movie Gravity, mm. where you are in space, no up, no down, no center of gravity, untethered, floating away. Yeah. And absolutely terrifying. And so, you know, for a long time, it was just too painful for me. It really was just this excruciating thing. And I was just like, I can't look at this. I can't think about it. And then really what did it was listening to people who weren't mean about religion. <laughs> I, and I know, <laughs> and, you know, and so I would, I, I have deep respect for the new atheists. Yeah. I really do. They're intelligent people and I've learned a lot from them. But I personally needed something that had less animosity towards religion because right. I still value religion, but I needed skepticism well, as I well. I, I think that's the thing is that even people that hate religion or that kind of just want that I've met that are just like, I just do away with all of it. Like, I'm like, you have made an emotional decision about something that affected you emotionally. Yes. And I can't just do away with, I can't do away no. with any religion. Like I... I want to know, like, I want to know what it is, but that's because mine that I grew up with has been wrong so many times. Yes. And I'm like, I totally understand it because I'm, I'm still angry and, and, and I'm upset and I don't know if I'll ever get entirely over that. You probably feel the same way. Oh my way. God. I will never recover. <laughs> I'll never feel like I wasn't lied to. And you will always probably be wedded to it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, exactly. You know, and, and that's the complicated relationship. And, and so what I needed were people who were genuinely skeptical and who still saw the benefit and value of religion. Absolutely. As a, to our species, that it is more than what Daniel Dennett calls a mimetic infestation. He describes religion as the fungal parasite that infects the brain of an ant that causes the brain to crawl up the <laughs> right. limb and die and and to propagate the fungus. You right. Know? And essentially that religion is nothing more than a self-serving, that it is nothing more than a meme, like an intellectual parasite that exists to propagate itself. Well, I I think evidence shows that religion is so much more than that. And I think he I think he has a really really interesting point there. Oh, he because, does. Because because I feel like I've seen that play out 
in many people that I know where yes. they, they subscribe to a specific religion, but they they end where the road ends. Like when they feel like they can't go any further, they just kind of stop. Like they it, it really does act like an infection to them where they just kind of decide to mentally Shut check down. out or, yes. or die instead of thinking past it. And and I what I can't understand is how you could believe in a God that gives you a brain to explore infinite possibilities and to suddenly somehow turn off that part of your brain in the name of the thing that you claim is the creator of that thing. So this is really the difference between healthy religion and unhealthy religion. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think unhealthy religion can be described as that fungal infestation Mm. that that invades the brain of the ant. And then maybe there's that healthy religion, which is this far more vast, complicated, nuanced thing. Yeah. You know, it was it was listening to people like Carrie Poppy, Jonathan Haidt, author of uh, The Happiness Hypothesis and The Righteous Mind. It was Dr. Jordan Peterson, who I know is a very controversial figure right mm-hmm. now, but his his perspective on religion was helpful to me. It, it was a it was a combination of different people who still respected religion and who saw its deep pitfalls and right. harms. And and that's what did it for me. And then finally, I feel like it wasn't until around last summer. It, it was it was last May when I did my first interview with Chris Shelton. You know, Chris Shelton brought me onto his show to yeah. talk about this, and and that was my first kind of public confession, right? Of being a a doubt filled believer. That was yeah. my first kind of verbal public confession of I'm an agnostic. Yeah, I'm a deeply Christian agnostic or an agnostic Christian or something like that. Yeah. No, um, I, I I totally get that. In the interest <laughs> of <laughs> of staying with the axioms, let's do the next one. Absolutely. And then maybe two-parter it. So the next axiom is that sin is at least get ready because we're gonna talk about sin. We're talking about sin. Lord. We're gonna we're going to really speak into the hearts of the <laughs> of the congregation here. We're gonna really challenge them. I know that most pastors don't do that, but we're really gonna <laughs> anyway. I, I love how pastors do that. If you feel convicted, it's not my fault. I'm just up here saying, preaching the word. And I'm like And the oh. Lord's moving in your heart. And I'm like, no, that's that's guilt. Yes. Uh, you can make anyone feel guilty for anything. Even more to the point, that's <laughs> shame. Shaming. Right. Yes. Um, sin is at least, and this is, again, uh, one of the axioms of faith. Sin is at least volitional action or inaction that violates one's own understanding of what is moral. Sin comes from the divergent impulses between our lower and higher brain functions and our evolution-driven tendency to do things that serve ourselves and our tribe. Even if this is all that sin is, it is destructive and threatens human flourishing. I love this. Yeah. I love the reframing of sin because I I actually, you know, kind of in contrast with a lot of my fellow enlightenment value, progressive, humanistic friends, I, I think that the concept of sin is actually a valuable concept and that we shouldn't just ditch it all together sure. in our modern world. And this idea of sin as the conflict between our higher and lower systems, you know, my lower system tells me to eat all of the donuts on your counter in the kitchen right now. Or <laughs> <laughs> Are you sure that's a lower system or just your blood sugar? <laughs> It might, it might just be my blood sugar. My, my lower system tells me that my immediate pleasures and satisfactions are all that matter. 
mm. and to ignore the justice of slaves in a sweatshop making my clothing, mm. to ignore the slaves in China making my iPhone. Right. And if it benefits me, and if it's out of sight, out of mind, then it's fine. Mm. And is it is it that it benefits you, or that you find nothing wrong with it, or that you just find it so far out of your periphery all of that it. it's all easy of to ignore? All of the above. Okay, you know, and and that I think is our sin nature. We are prone to only do things that benefit our tribe and ourselves. And your, I, your Christianity is showing. I know, and. and <laughs> And what, and I think this capacity to move beyond that is actually what makes us human. It, I, I think it, it's one of the things that lifts us above the other species, yeah. where other species aren't able to move above their self-interested tribal mentalities. Chimps can't. Sure. But we can. Yeah, this is very much a human This is very much a human thing. And, and so I just, I find <clears throat> this framing of sin so helpful. Yeah, and I love it. When I read this framing of sin, uh, I was reminded of some time that I spent as a teenager working for this uh, organization called Child Evangelism Fellowship, which as a as a young that teenage like Christian, oh yeah, it completely was. I mean, I had like some of the funnest summers of my life with this uh, yeah. group of people, but basically, essentially like the idea behind it was you and a bunch of other teenagers go to a training camp. It's going to start to sound really cultish really quickly, so just bear with me here. It's okay. Um, hey, I'm a, I have my own stories that I can yes. tell you. So yes, I totally get it. Um, so we would go and basically be trained on how to host and perform these like backyard Bible clubs for lower income areas. So you would basically take Bible stories and games and all of all of with a very like overt moral center to them where you try to explain these concepts of sin and sin nature and and fall and redemption and why we need God and why if you don't have God you could possibly end up burning alive in hell for the rest of eternity and so it was like we would go learn how to convey these messages and I I remember when I was reading this axiom of faith that there was a specific definition for sin that we used to explain to these kids in these backyard Bible clubs. And it was that sin is anything that you think, say, or do that makes God unhappy. And as an adult now, looking back on that, like I taught that concept to so many kids. Mm. But my own concept of God, even at the time, would have made that, if I had really sat down and thought about it, insane. Yes. Because the God that I knew was distant and angry and always out to get me, always over my shoulder watching, you know, <laughs> always making me feel guilty. An abusive for father. Yeah. Like, so it was when you, when you're just throwing out those concepts of people that have their own understandings of what God is or no understanding of what God is whatsoever, it's really easy to make God unhappy. Right. It is really easy to feel like you have made him so unhappy you'll never be able to achieve anything within this construct. Like you'll never be able to be on the positive end of this construct. And then when you are, you're so, you're so off-putting to your friends. Like you're, <laughs> you're that, you're that, that Christian guy who comes into circles. He's like, yeah, I don't think I'm gonna, I'm not gonna drink or say swear words. or yeah. You just like come across as, as someone who like you differentiate yourself 
by your own how how much more righteous you are. And and one thing that I want to point out that I think is often missed is you know those judgmental douchebags about those ju- <laughs> about those judgmental. They're douchebags. a dime a dozen. <laughs> They're a dime a dozen. Is also just how deeply painful that mm-hmm. position is for them. Yeah, and, and that it really is a state of suffering. And so what I have learned, what I've realized is yes, as infuriating and objectively damaging Mm. they can be they are suffering as well because that belief system creates suffering and i remember when i was that person it was a deeply painful fearful place or something something is as simple as peer pressure that everyone grows up with like i feel like the church over spiritualized peer pressure yes it was like this is evil trying to come into your life and like this is satan is prowling around like a roaring lion it's like it's so fear centric it is so it's it's crippling to view the world in such a way that there is you know that the world is mostly evil and it's just constantly trying to, to tear you down or that you should be you should always be wary of everything you should never trust anything because it's probably the devil my experience is that the church made so many experiences in my life so much harder and actually so much more dangerous. Do you feel like because they over-spiritualized Because them they over-spiritualized it and because they overemphasized, greatly exaggerated the dangers. I, You know, mm-hmm. the biggest one is sexuality, that if you have sex, it's going to destroy you. Well, then there's the, you know, it's game over and you'll never have a meaningful relationship right. ever again. Yeah. And if you do, well, you know, it's by the grace of God. Yeah. And, and so there's so much weight put on things like sexuality, on drinking, on drug use. Yeah. Which, yes, there are harms. There are potential harms in all of those things. You know, the world is not a safe place. Life is dangerous. But the weight that the church puts on those things is so huge and so crushing that ordinary things that teenagers and young adults encounter right. suddenly are not ordinary and they don't pass through them gracefully and, and they learn. make the stakes too high. Yes, like, exactly. I and, and not only that, when you are when you're in a position of authority or you're an adult and you're using like religion or your religious beliefs about something to convey to your child what behavior is acceptable and not acceptable and not keeping a foot on earth. <laughs> you know, it's like all, all the reasons for you to do something are are spiritual. Then when those, when that kid realizes that you lied to them about the dangers of something, they won't trust you anymore. Exactly. Like I don't trust, like I, I don't trust a lot of things now because it's like, I was told, I was told by a lot of people like, Oh my God, if you, if you smoke weed, like it, it's a gateway drug, and it's like, no, how You're many? Going to be demon possessed? Oh my god, that's what I heard. How many? I other heard kids that I'm like, going to become yes. demon possessed. It's like there, no, no. Like if we could have just looked at it scientifically, or if parents had just been like, look, smoking weed makes you being okay with being lazy, and that's not cool. Like, yeah. but. It's depends. Not, it's not going to kill you. And even that depends on the situation. Yeah. <laughs> it depends and on you. Right. And you and like when you're a teenager, <laughs> there's like there's effects that it can have on your brain. It's probably safer for you to partake of that as an adult once your brain has stopped exactly. developing. But exactly. if you decide to toke up with your friends one night after a show, it's not going to kill you. It is not going to kill you. It's going to it's going to impair your judgment 
to some yes. degree. And you might not, so you need to be responsible, but you have to learn that responsibility. You have to decide for yourself. And like, you have to put the emphasis on like giving, like give control. Yes. <laughs> give control to the person and let them know that they're responsible so that when something does happen, they don't come running back to to church or to their religious, you know, superiors or authority figures saying, I was I was swayed by the devil. No, you weren't. You're a teenager and you're stupid and you made a decision. You your brain is it, still cooking. Yeah. Your you're brain fine. your brain is still forming. Your your pre uh, your uh, prefrontal cortex is barely there. Right. Do like, you feel you guilty have... about this thing because you you innately do feel guilty, or do you feel guilty because we set the stakes really high up here and you think you disappointed us? Exactly. That's that's a huge it's a huge difference that needs to be and that burden is at the end of the day i think what crushes people more mm. than the things themselves yeah than having sex or yeah smoking pot or whatever the shame and the overwhelming pressure to not have your soul turned into a whore crux by having sex <laughs> <laughs> that didn't happen to you <laughs> it hasn't happened to me yet I've had lots of sex and it hasn't happened yet. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's our show for this week. Thank you, Matt, so much for joining me. We're going to turn this into a multi-parter. So be sure to stay tuned next week for our continued conversation about faith and doubt and Science Mike's axioms of faith. So special thanks to my team, Carson Green and Justin Caleb Bryan for keeping me sane through this whole process. If you want to to read more of my stuff, please go to sbradfordlong.com and you can read all my dozens of articles there about faith and doubt and LGBT issues and whatever strikes my fancy. Also, Matt Langston, you have a new album out. I do. It's called Rad Science and it is available via Rock Candy Recordings and I'm sure there'll probably be a link to it in the show notes. Yes, there will. And yeah. so instead of playing my regular outro music, we're going to play a song from that album. Awesome. All right. We'll see you next week. My attention span is paper thin Can't stop from cyberspacing out again Is this what I'm paying for staying relevant this season? Mm, my bank account looks more like an abyss Friends have been asking when am I having kids? I guess stressing out it's how I'm gonna spend this
Just holding out